Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, an in-depth discussion with Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms President John Carpe on free speech, censorship, and civil liberties. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. Great to have you tuned into the program. As you may have noticed, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently for a few shows, a series that's going to take a big picture look at not just some of the bigger issues we're facing as a society and have been in the year up till now and the year ahead, but also some of the people that we've had on the show a number of times throughout the year to talk about various things, but not uh, situations where we often and get the opportunity to really delve into who they are and what they're doing and why it is so important. And obviously, one of the biggest themes and the most recurring themes, sadly, on the Andrew Lawton show in the past year has been civil liberties or what's left of them in a Canadian context. And one of the big groups that's been at the forefront of the civil liberties fight is the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. Helming that is John Carpe, the president of the JCCF, who joins me on the line now. John, it's good to have you back on the show. Thanks for your time. Glad to be with you, Andrew. You and I have spoken at a number of points throughout the year, and I, while I always enjoy talking to you, I, I'd say that in the past year, I haven't wanted to have to talk to you as much as I have. And, and I, I must say, this is probably something that you're experiencing on your end. You love the work that you do. You probably wish for the sake of the country you didn't have so much of it, though. I, I wish I could uh, close down the Justice Centre and we could all go home because the uh, spirit of freedom so permeated the culture that every elected official of every party was firmly committed to the free society and to our fundamental charter freedoms of, of uh, speech and religion and conscience and association and bodily autonomy. Uh, but that, that's just not the case. Uh, so yeah, it's too bad that we have to exist in a way. Because we are taking a bigger picture look at, at the issue and also at uh, you and, and the JCCF, I was wondering if we could go back a bit. How and, and why did this organization start? Well, I don't know if it was Ronald Reagan or somebody else who said that liberty is always one generation away from extinction. Every new generation has to learn uh, you know, why the free society is, is better than, uh, you know, uh, an unfree society, uh, of which there are many different kinds, of, of course, whether it's uh, totalitarian communism, whether it's fascism, whether it's uh, theocracy. Um, so every, every generation needs to learn this because um, unless the freedom resides in our, in our hearts and in our minds, there's no constitution and no court that can really preserve it. Uh, no, constitutions are good and courts can be good, uh, but ultimately, so the reason the Justice Center was, was started 11 years ago was to, to be a voice for freedom in Canada's courtrooms, to litigate for these fundamental freedoms. And the, one of the reasons the organization is necessary is because uh, the average citizen cannot afford 50000 or $100,000 to hire a lawyer to defend her charter freedoms. So when the governments do threaten, trample on uh, one or more of the charter freedoms, the average citizen, where do they go? 
uh, your typical law firm, you might get lucky and you might get a lawyer that can do it at a discount rate, but then maybe that lawyer is not experienced in constitutional law. Uh, so what we have at the Justice Center is we have a, a team of lawyers that are practicing constitutional law all the time. So they have the experience in it and the services are provided free of charge to the client. Some of the clients choose to donate if they want to, but there's no obligation. And so that's why we exist. It's, it's to defend the charter freedoms in the courtrooms uh, to provide people with, with uh, pro bono legal representation from experienced lawyers. You mentioned that freedom has to exist and the yearning for freedom has to exist in, in people's hearts and minds. And I, I know that JCCF does a little bit of that when you talk to the media, when you speak at events and explain the cases that you're working on. But you're, you're still, as you note, they're primarily focused on championing these things through the legal system. Have you gotten so pessimistic yet that you don't think the legal system is where these issues can be solved? Well, when I, I've often said when in you know speeches that I've I've given at, at conferences and events or in the last two years lots of rallies uh, that the public opinion is probably more important than the court rulings because if public opinion can you know rebel and revolt against these very unscientific and irrational laws and rules most most of the laws and rules in the past. Uh, year and eight months have been not not based on science and just very uh, superstitious and irrational. But if the public rebels and revolts against that, uh, then the laws will change because politicians, with few exceptions, politicians are followers, not leaders. And um, so the court of public opinion ultimately is more important than the court of law. So we do fight the battles in court, but we don't know now, you, you never know ahead of time if you're going to win or lose. So the, the, the court of public opinion is even more important. One of the big challenges we've seen, and I think you're, you're very keenly aware of this, John, is that a lot of people in Canada have very willingly surrendered a lot of their civil liberties to government. They've been very deferential on things like vaccine passports. I'd, I'd also say, and it's not pandemic specific, on privacy rights, that old, if you have nothing to hide line, then you don't need to fear a, a government poking around in, in your business. How do you break through that? And how do you establish to people that think they are not doing anything wrong, that think they don't have anything to hide, that, that even if they may be free of the government's uh, very draconian measures in one particular context, they might not be the next time government does something? It's an ongoing work of, of education. Uh, people, generally speaking, most people are short-sighted. So they they tend to protest when their own ox gets gored, when it's their own, uh, you know, when, it, when it's their own issue or something they care about, when they're personally affected. Um, and it's probably always been the case that the people who see the bigger picture are probably the minority. So you take free speech, for example, uh, 20, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, the only, threat to free speech uh, that I was aware of 15 years ago was directed at campus pro-life groups. And unless you were a pro-lifer, your freedom of speech was pretty safe. And I warned 15 years ago, if you accept that it's okay to suppress pro-life speech just because you find it, 
you know, disagreeable or despicable or abhorrent or hateful or hurtful or offensive, if you're okay with uh, a governmental authority like a university suppressing pro-life speech, there's a precedent there and it will spread like a cancer. And like right now today, the pro-lifers might be the only ones impacted, but you just wait. And so here we are 15 years later and there's, there's free speech left, right and center all over the place. Uh, we've got this vicious, aggressive cancel culture so that universities, uh, it's not just pro-lifers now that are uh, being targeted for, uh, for their speech. You've got anybody who disagrees with the transgender narrative uh, the politically correct, you know, that, that we all have to buy into this notion that that gender is a social construct. If you disagree with that, like J.K. Rowling uh, in the United Kingdom, you're subject to cancel culture. If you do not uh, completely embrace a, one particular anti-racism narrative, right, because there's, there's different it's a whole complex subject and there, there's different ways to be anti-racist. There's different ways to express it. But if you don't buy into the one correct narrative, uh, you get canceled. If you don't subscribe to the dominant narrative on COVID, on lockdowns, on mandatory vaccinations, on ivermectin, you get shut down. So it's an ongoing work to just educate people that, you know, for example, if you're not a firearms owner, you should be concerned about the confiscation of lawfully acquired property, even if you have no personal enthusiasm for firearms, because there's a precedent there. If the government can just take your firearms that are legally purchased and you haven't done anything wrong, you've never misused them, and if government could come along and take that property away, that's a dangerous precedent for all Canadians. One of the big challenges I think a lot of free speech advocates have had to contend with is that the focus was for so long simply on government censorship, which I'd say is the at the apex of, of censorship, that emanating from a state where if you speak against the state or say something the state doesn't approve of, you get thrown in jail. But you are right that missing from a lot of the discourse was the importance of, of preserving that cultural support for free speech, because that's where deplatforming comes from. J.K. Rowling has been no doubt censored, but she she has not been censored by a state. So a lot of people who who are not actually civil libertarians, people that don't uh, don't support free speech, would say, "Oh well, you know, the government hasn't censored her," and and they try to draw this this parallel between, well, no free speech is is con consequence free speech and, and and all of that. And and I would agree. I mean, the, the complete libertarian utopia is that businesses should be able to say, I'm not going to publish that book or I'm not going to rent that uh, lectern or that venue out and people can then go elsewhere. I mean, that's the, the way the world is supposed to work. But there's very much an imbalance there because businesses don't have the right to do that in so many contexts. They can't say, uh, you know, the proverbial case in, in Canada quite effectively, uh, you know, the, the Christian baker is not going to bake the gay wedding cake. So we have this, this version of individual choice that only extends to certain people and certain groups. Well, I think the solution there, it's got to be one of two things. Either the government steps in and regulates, you know, uh, Facebook, Google, Twitter, and what's the fourth big one I'm missing? Anyway, the, the, the big giants, either the government has to step in and pass a law and say, look, you guys are 
you're not an advocacy group. You are kind of like a highway. And if you're a highway, you have to let all cars uh, use the highway. Um, so you have to uh, not be biased against certain viewpoints. You have to uh, not censor any viewpoints. So that would be one way to go. I don't know how effective that would be. Uh, the other one, which is more pragmatic, is that the people who are censored will have to move to their own platforms. So I can tell you, with, with the Justice Center, a lot of our YouTube video, a lot of a lot of our videos have been censored on YouTube. They they've been censored within minutes or within hours of going up, and so we have them on Rumble and BitChute. And I think what's going to happen is that the more that the, the uh, Facebook, Twitter uh, Google, uh, and again, I'm missing one of the four, uh, the more that these giants are biased against libertarian speech, against conservative speech, uh, the more that people are going to go to other platforms. And, you know, that people might lament that 10 years from now, where there's even more society is completely disconnected, because you're on, let, let's say that you're on bit shoot and rumble only, uh, and your next door neighbor is on YouTube only, and there's not much crossover, uh, it could lead to a further splintering of society. But I guess that's just the, the way that technology is, is uh, dragging society into that kind of splintering that would not, exist, would not have existed, uh, at least not anywhere close to the same extent, in the 1980s or even the 1990s. Yeah, and I even go back to, what, what are we talking about, a decade ago when Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act was repealed, which was the, the section that's now uh, trying to be brought back by the Liberals as in the previous Parliament Bill C-36. I don't know what it's going to be called when they reintroduce it, but around that time you had some of those old-school Liberals that were speaking up, people like uh, Senator Jerry Grafstein and, and other voices that were, were very pro-free speech Liberals. And now that is pretty much gone. I mean, the idea of the principled pro-free speech leftist, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's a lot more elusive than it was even a decade ago. It's, it's scary times for, uh, for free speech. It's, it's very scary. It's the same, you know, I, I find a certain commonality in uh, it, it's government holding itself out as your savior and protector and it's government fear-mongering, right? So in the same way that government will say, well, got to. Uh, if you haven't gotten two injections of the of the 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 COVID shot, then uh, you know we got to protect you from these dangerous disease spreading people. So we're going to ban those people from airplanes in order to protect you. We're going to have vaccine passports to protect you. Uh, we have lockdowns to protect you from the scary virus. And now we've got uh, forthcoming legislation to protect you from hate speech. And so it's this uh, infantilization. It's like we're all children and you know, you and I, we need the government to decide on our behalf what is or is not hateful. In a way, it's extremely degrading to, for the government to say that, that, that I cannot read something and decide for myself whether I agree with it, disagree with it, whether it's true, whether it's false, whether it's hateful, whether it's not hateful. These are incredibly subjective decisions. Uh, you and I could see the same, uh, you and I could both be looking at, say, a, a political cartoon, and you could look at it and go, it's hateful, and I could say, oh, no, not at all. 
or I could say it's a hateful cartoon and you could look at it and say, no, not at all. And yet we're just giving up. Uh, a lot of people just want to give up their uh, freedom and responsibility as thinking adults to make up their own minds about what is or is not hateful. And they're buying into this. Oh, the government is going to protect us from hate. It's very sad. Yeah, and the word you use there, infantilizing, I, I think is spot on because we are creating generations now of people who think that disagreement is in some way an assault on their sensibilities and they, they need to be protected against something by virtue of it being a, a position that may not be all that common in their lives. And and we see the implications of this in, in bubbles and echo chambers and what you indicated earlier about the, the siloing of society where, okay, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, that's for people that view the world this way and rumble parlor bit shoot is for people that view the world this way and, and neither is engaging in in i mean going back to john stuart mill the most important exercise in unlocking truth which is finding a position that is distinct from yours to either a uh, perhaps expose you to the truth or b at least make you more strong in your resolve and more confident and able to defend it but in in that open exchange of ideas no one loses if both parties will agree to do it Absolutely. And that requires a certain maturity that certainly has been lacking on campus in the last decade. Uh, it seems that uh, judging on what I've seen on campus, it just seems that in, in high school, the kids are not getting taught that about debate. I mean, maybe we need more of that in, in the school curriculum where you just, you really you know, if, if you make the kids have a debate on whatever, you know, free trade, capital punishment, abortion, immigration, uh, you know, and euthanasia, uh, <laughs> lockdown restrictions, I mean, whatever, right, to, to really get people thinking. Because if people participate in a debate, uh, they, they experience themselves how enriching it is when you have to really think through, uh, especially if the teacher uh, assigns and says, this is the position you're going to argue. You know, and then you really have to think, okay, I've got to get into the other guy's shoes. Uh, you know, what are the five reasons for being against this, even though I'm in favor of it, but I'm going to think about, you know, why should I be against this? Because it, it, it just, you get these students come onto campus and they're, they think they're entitled to not hear or see anything that they disagree with. That's just, uh, it, 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 it's appalling and it, it bodes poorly for the future because if you want to have good laws, I think everybody wants to have good laws. You get there through uh, debate, right? And somebody comes forward with a bill or with a motion to repeal a bill and you, you, you have this back and forth uh, debate and you challenge uh, and allow yourself to be challenged you come up with a better law than if it's just a blind unthinking. Like what we saw last week, we've got this conversion therapy bill uh, where the Conservative Party of Canada, I think it was Rob Moore, I'm not sure, one of the Conservative MPs made a motion that, that this would be unanimous for all three readings. Just completely eliminated debate in Parliament on a bill. Um, very sad. 
Yeah, and that committee process whereby you find ways to really delve into these things and challenge assumptions and hear witness testimony and, and all of that. No, that's a, a valid point. And I would, I would also add, so I serve as a volunteer judge at the, the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom's annual essay contest. And I always enjoy when someone comes in and gives a position that I don't think is actually theirs in their essay, in some cases even arguing against civil liberties. But I, I admire that exercise because you are right. That is a, a tremendous tremendously valuable process for you as a reader and, and also for you as a writer to have to say, well, how would I challenge against this? Because the only way we're going to win is if we have answers to all of these arguments that are being thrown in our face to defend uh, infringing on freedoms and, and abridging freedoms. And, and I want to go back to the JCCF's work in this, because I know that you've been on a hiring spree as of late, and, and I know this returns to what we said at the beginning, which is that you'd love to not be expanding and, and not have a need for it. But are you finding there is actually a, a, a substantive amount in some way of, of law school grads, new lawyers who are on side on these issues? Well, we are getting enough uh, applicants. We're up to about uh, 14 lawyers right now, and these are... And they're busy lawyers. Uh, yeah, they're all very busy. And they're, they're talented, competent, experienced litigators, and they have a passion for freedom. Um, that's what unites all the staff. We've got a, we've got quite the, uh, we've got quite the diversity of uh, political backgrounds, political orientations, religions, uh, skin colors, vaccination status. Uh, not that I ask, but sometimes people, you know, disclose on on, on their own. Uh, so we've got a diverse crew of people that are committed to fundamental freedoms. Uh, one of our lawyers. Uh, said when interviewed said that uh, that two shots of the vaccine had been received and yet this lawyer believes passionately that this should be a voluntary choice based on the, your right to bodily autonomy and there should not be any state pressure state coercion to take this vaccine right and that's coming from somebody that uh, that had voluntarily received two shots so um, it's uh, got a lot of work ahead of us and, and still looking for uh, for another one or two lawyers, another two or three paralegals to get to join us by January. Going back to the specifically the question of newer grads and newer lawyers, are you finding these attitudes there? Or is it really hard to in the new crop of graduates that are entering the legal profession, find ones that are really as passionate about defending freedoms as you are? It seems to be, um, you know, the, the lawyers working for us, we've got anywhere from, you know, got got called to the bar six months ago to got called to the bar 16 years ago. Uh, so, so there's a whole uh, spectrum is not the right word, but we have we, we have people of, of different ages, and different levels of experience. If I had to venture a guess, I would say that there are more freedom-minded lawyers amongst the older lawyers, but that would be for the Canadian population generally. Uh, I think that, you know, it was just more of an entrenched ethos. Um, so a lot of, you know, generally speaking, I think older Canadians are more inclined to buy into the idea that, well, it's a free country, you can say whatever you want. And if other people find it offensive, then that's too bad for the other people. They can tune you out, they don't have to agree with you, but you've got a right to speak freely. That notion, I think, is more deeply entrenched in older Canadians, including older lawyers. 
Um, but fortunately, you know, there are younger lawyers who believe in that with equal passion. There's been a part of me that's been wondering for the last few years if this is all cyclical in nature and it has to get worse before it gets better. And unfortunately, the, the, it's just kept getting even worse than I, I thought it would be, especially throughout the pandemic, which I, I think has exacerbated existing challenges and, and created new ones. But, but I'll ask you, do you, generally speaking, have a level of optimism? Even if it's, even if it's cautious or qualified optimism. I've got, I've got optimism in the sense that uh, I, I believe very strongly that, that truth always vanquishes the lie. I believe that good overcomes evil. I believe that justice will trample injustice into the ground. Where I'm more pessimistic is that I have no idea how long it's going to take. And, you know, you take this QR code society right now. Uh, there are a lot of people are still in a state of fear of the virus. Uh, I would argue, based on the government's own data, that you know the, the fear is exaggerated. I mean, yes, there are some people that should be afraid of COVID if you're older, if you've got uh, serious health conditions, and so on. Uh, but the fear is, is exaggerated. However, uh, the fear is real in terms of when you experience the fear, you're experiencing real fear. To the person experiencing fear, it really doesn't matter whether it's rational or not. Uh, you know, somebody could be scared of spiders, as many people are, and you can argue, uh, you know, rationally that that in Canada there are not many poisonous spiders. I think we got some black widows in parts of the country, but but by and large, your typical Canadian basement spider is not poisonous and is not capable of harming you. Nevertheless, if you feel afraid, you feel afraid, and I think it's that way with COVID. It, it, you can go through the government data, and that's an exercise that must be done, but people are afraid. Now, that sounds like a side tangent. I am getting back to your question about the long-term, short-term. Um, I think with the QR codes right now, you're not seeing a lot of opposition because you still have a lot of fear of COVID. The interesting thing about the QR code, though, is that it's very, very easy for government to expand this to, have you been a good boy or have you been a good girl? Uh, right now, it's, you know, have you been a good boy and by getting your two shots? But it would not be that hard for the government to change that into, have you been a good boy and you have, by, by not going to bad websites, meaning not, not pornography necessarily, but that you have not gone to any hateful websites like, you know, True North or the Rebel or the Justice Center. Um, it wouldn't be that hard for government to say, well, we got to keep everybody safe from hate. Uh, it's very important. I mean, you you support safety, don't you? Don't don't you want to be safe from from hatred? So we're going to say that if if you've been a good citizen by not visiting any hateful websites, you're gonna you're gonna have a valid vaccine passport. But if you've been a bad boy and you've been to hateful websites, uh, your vaccine passport will not be valid. So you can't go to restaurants or to the gym. You can't get on an airplane. That's not very hard to do at all. Now, I, I think with the QR codes, life, unfortunately, will have to get uglier uh, before you get a substantial revolt against the QR code. 
Yeah, and this is where we get into this point that I've raised in the past, which is that once government has already opened the door to doing a certain thing, the details are pretty insignificant in a lot of ways. Once they've already decided that you, they can stratify society in the lines of vaccination, it doesn't matter. They can do based on flu shot, based on third doses, fourth, fourth doses. In the case of Austria or uh, other places like Greece, once they've decided that a vaccine should be mandatory, how they enforce that is, is just a matter of their own personal preference. So you have to start looking at these things that are, are very much stepping stones as stepping stones and, and not just assuming that whenever an extreme measure is presented, that it is an extreme measure and not going to be in six months a moderate one. Well, we've had what a public health emergency now for uh, a year and eight months, a year and nine months, simply not supported by government data you look at the Statistics Canada death data from 2020, it is, uh, it it is in line with the, the death rates in 2019, 2018, 2017. And of course, it's complicated and there's many nuances and there, you know, there's higher death rates in 2020 amongst younger people, which is interesting because the COVID deaths are overwhelmingly amongst older people and the death rate amongst older people uh, in 2020 is in line with 2019. That could be a whole that could be a three-hour show uh, looking at all those nuances. But, but, but what I'm saying is there's no basis, uh, there's no rational scientific factual basis for saying that we're in a public health emergency when you look at the death data in Canada and other countries and the death rates in 2020 were very much in line with the death rates in 2019, proving beyond any doubt that COVID is not this unusually deadly killer like the Spanish flu of 1918. And yet here we are still in a state of emergency uh, a year and uh, a year and eight months later. Very scary. So let's talk about a little bit about what you're doing in the year ahead. I, I know we've been covering all that you've been doing in the past year. What are the, the big battles you have on the horizon, at least foreseeable ones for 2022? One of the most important ones is our defense of medical doctors who are being prosecuted and disciplined by their own College of Physicians and Surgeons. Uh, we're defending Dr. Charles Hoff in British Columbia, Dr. Francis Christian in uh, Saskatchewan, Dr. Chris Milburn in Nova Scotia, uh, on and on and on. Lots of doctors. Uh, some of them, they're not even court cases. They're, they're under the radar, but the doctors had a threatening letter from the college. So we write to the college and remind them that they are a government body. And they're required, whether they like it or not, to respect freedom of expression. One of the rationales for freedom of expression um, in the scientific realm is that we need a hypothesis to, there are no sacred cows in science. If you want to call yourself a scientist, then you put out a hypothesis and you have enough humility to say, if you want to poke holes in my hypothesis, you go ahead and do that. And I'll join you in attacking it because the only way forward in science, and I think it's true in, in public policy, in laws, in philosophy, in religion, in literature, the only way forward is through that challenge. Uh, so the moment you have people talking about settled science, and this is the truth, and thou shalt abide by it. Um, so this is, this is really scary, where colleges are shutting down debate. Uh, they've never done this before. Uh, about 10 years ago, there was a, a very popular new remedy uh, for multiple sclerosis. 
And um, there is lots of debate. Uh, some doctors said it was wonderful. Some doctors said it was useless. Some doctors said, oh, it's worse than useless. It's harmful. Nobody should get this therapy. And you have this big debate about this multiple sclerosis therapy that some Italian doctor had invented. That's how it should be. Uh, there's been debate in the past. It hasn't been a hot topic recently, but, you know, circumcision of baby boys. Some people argue that this is, you know, it, it's harmful, it's unnecessary. Others say, no, it's, it, there's health benefits. Bring on the debate. The college did not step in and silence the debate and say, well, here is the truth. The colleges did not interfere in the doctor-patient relationship. So some doctors would prescribe certain things off-label and say, I've had tremendous success with patients. Uh, Anti-cholesterol medication. Some doctors are big fans. Uh, some doctors say it's terrible. The harmful side effects are more harmful. Other doctors say it's very much patient by patient. Some people should get it, some people shouldn't. And so doctors are free to practice medicine. The college did not get in there and lay down the law on uh, anti-cholesterol medication. And I could go on and on and on. Well, now we've got colleges stepping in saying that it's illegal for a doctor to give a medical exemption for a vaccine from people with serious heart conditions. Um, I know a nurse in Calgary who was told by her own doctor, uh, when the vaccine was voluntary, she was told by her doctor, do not get this vaccine based on your health conditions and based on there's no long-term safety testing for all these reasons, do not get the vaccine. Now she goes back to the very same doctor and says, can I get an exemption from the vaccine requirement? And the doctor says, sorry, not allowed. Um, just frightening how these colleges are usurping science and uh, preventing doctors from practicing medicine, shutting down debate. Uh, doctors who have had prescribed ivermectin with great success. Now, ivermectin, it's, it's, not a, it's not a horse medication. It's a people medication. It's been around since the 1970s. It is harmless uh, unless you, like any drug, if you overdose on it, uh, it can be harmful. But, but taken in proper doses, it is harmless. And yet you've got this aggressive uh, colleges are shutting down prohibiting doctors from prescribing ivermectin to uh, their patients. So all of that to say, this is probably one of our most important cases is the defense of these doctors uh, of their free expression rights in the face of uh, the colleges of physicians and surgeons. Well, we'll certainly keep tabs on that as it heads into the new year. And, and like we've said on the show many times in the past, I, I fear a lot of these battles will be years long, but they're very important because as the last two years has proven to us, we know these things will come up again and again. John Carpe, president of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, very much enjoyed the opportunity to have a, a much more uh, lengthy discussion than our, our interviews typically are. So thanks very much and keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on your show. We covered a lot, but a lot of it is very important, and I know we're going to have to revisit it in the year ahead, but really interesting to know how this organization that we talk about a lot came to be and, and what that overarching philosophy is. And, and yes, I agree wholeheartedly with John. We've got to move the culture in the right direction on this. So that's my little contribution to it here on The Andrew Lawton Show. With that, we've got to wrap things up. My thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.